Hello and welcome to the LIBF podcast. On today's podcast, we have our first episode of our new collaborative Future of Finance series with CSFI. We have a panel of leaders throughout the industry debating the current trends in banking and finance and discuss what they might mean for the future of the sectors. Enjoy. This is a seminar that the London Institute of Banking and Finance is putting out in cooperation with the Centre for the Study of Financial Innovation on the future of finance. This is the first of a series of videos and the topic is the digital opportunity, the digital threat, the digitalization of finance. Uh, and I have a, a put together a, I think, very distinguished panel of experts to discuss four basic questions. How is fintech affecting the business model for finance? What are the main technologies, digital technologies that are driving that change? What are the major challenges to the take up of digital finance? And what is the impact of COVID-19? Because we have to discuss that, obviously. I'm Andrew Hilton. I am a visiting professor at the LIBF. I'm also uh, the director of the study for Center for the Study of Financial Innovation. Uh, and as you may know, the CSFI has gone virtual for the, pure, the period of the uh, coronavirus shutdown. We've done about 50 uh, videos on a whole range of topics, but cooperating with the LIBF is a new venture for us in the digital world. And I'm delighted that we have, as I say, four panelists, four important panelists. The first panelist is Dave Birch, known to his friends as David G.W. Birch. Uh, he has a new book out. It is called The Currency Cold War. Uh, and it is, I think, something that's just just really hit the uh, hit the uh, the pavement <laughs> it is his third major book he recently published a book called beyond Bab before Bab babylon and beyond bitcoin and before that there was a book entitled identity is the new money he is an author a commentator on digital financial services an expert on digital identity and on digital money and most recently, he has become a regular columnist for Forbes magazine. Uh, and his most recent column, his fascinating column, is on the impact of the old Diners Club uh, card on the whole payment system. Um, I'm delighted that we have him. He is also, as I say, uh, a co-founder and global ambassador for the company, uh, a major uh, communications consultancy, Consult Hyperion. Helene Panzerino is the author amongst many other things, of business, fund, <laughs> business funding for dummies. Mm -hmm. So perfect for me. She's an associate director of the Center for the Center for Digital Banking and Finance at LABF. She's one of the founder entrepreneurs who set up Innovate Finance as early as 2014. Since then, she's been a consultant, a mentor, and an academic. Radu Ogidan, I hope that I have his name vaguely right, is the Vice President for Cognitive Computing at Endava, uh, and also uh, he has come out of the ba tech background with NTT Data in Romania and with Brain Tonics, Braintronics, these words are difficult. Um, Amir Nuriala is the Chief Commercial Officer and Chief Strategy Officer at CallSign, formerly the Chief Strategy Officer at Oak North, which is obviously one of the most successful fintech banks in the UK. I'm going to give you, first of all, four or five minutes of Dave Birch. That's about as much as most of us can take anyway. Dave, tell us what's on front of mind as far as you're concerned in the world of digital finance. 
I, I would say uh, an easy way to sum up the current situation is that we're coming to the end of the fintech era. That's that's not a particularly brave or, or outlandish prediction. I think several people have, have said they've uh, they've seen this coming. And we're moving into the tech fin era. And what I mean by that is that in the fintech era, um, the new companies, I refuse to call them challengers because they weren't, they weren't really challengers. They were doing the same things as the incumbents, but in a, you know, using some new technology. The fintechs made money in the same way as, as, as other finance. You know, they made money on financial products, on loans or payments or, I mean, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. They may have done it in a cleverer way by using some new technology but uh, but they weren't they weren't really challenges in my opinion. They were niche providers of financial services that were using new technology. Oak North, by the way, I think stands out. I'm not saying that just because Amir is here, but um, uh, you know, for, for for doing something that other people were doing, but doing it in a much cleverer way by using the new technology that was available to them. But that era is coming to an end, I think, accelerated by COVID, but not not a strategy set because of COVID. I think, you know, Chris Skinner wrote a nice thing the other day. He said, you know, it's like 2030 is arriving in 2020, which is a little bit of an exaggeration. But it, the point is, you know, the virus and all these kind of things are accelerating trends that are already there. They're not making new trends. We're about to go into the tech fin era. And the distinction is that in the tech fin era, the financial services are embedded in, you know, technology provided services, but they make money in a different way. And, Fortunately for me, there's a fantastic example of this because I think it was actually a CSI. I can't remember what, what the topic, but I remember a thing, a couple of, Andrew was there, so I think it was CSFI. And just as a sort of throwaway comment, I said, well, but you know, you've got to think in the future, it'll be Amazon providing the services and the, and the customers won't know and frankly won't care because they'll never read to page 300 of the credit agreement that it's Goldman Sachs that's actually providing the money. As far as the customer's concerned, they got it from Amazon. And, you know, what do you, two days ago, we see the deal between Amazon and Goldman Sachs to do precisely that. Not, I'm not saying that because I have crystal balls. That was an obvious conclusion to draw. But the point is about business model. If you look, I mean, I'll use Amazon as another example. If you look at the small business lending that goes on in Amazon Marketplace, you know, they don't make a living out of the margin on those loans. In fact, they could do it at zero. In fact, they could probably do it as a loss leader because they make money from the marketplace. They provide those loans not to make money from the loans. They provide those loans to bring merchants into their marketplace. So if I had to sum things up in a, in a sort of bumper sticker version of the world, Andrew, I would say the virus has accelerated the, the flip from the fintech era to the tech fin era. But that was coming anyway. The virus has just, has just brought it on a little bit quicker. That, I think that's okay, well, let me ask Helene. Fintech, TechFin, are you, are you broadly in line with what Dave is predicting? Yeah, I think Dave is right. And I think if we uh, look at what happened with Facebook, uh, for example, enabling payments on WhatsApp in Brazil, that was announced today. I've seen that all over my LinkedIn pages as well. But there were many years where people were saying, well, why, what, what if Facebook uh, became a bank? What if Amazon became a bank? What if Google became a bank? And then there was always the conversation around, well, why would they bother to go through the regulatory hurdles when they already have our data, which is the thing that's really important. And as Dave said, I echo that when we look back at FinTech, when it, it launched as a moniker, 
The idea was that it was going to be seamless. It was going to be embedded in our active lives. And I think that Amazon, for example, is doing that. I'm in the transaction. So that's when the financial solution comes to me. I don't need my house thinking, oh, I need to think about Amazon's financial solution while I'm buying, you know, whatever, or I'm sitting on my laptop. So I think that, that brings it to the full circle of what it was meant to be. It's, it's meant to be embedded and transparent and seamless. All the things that we talk about when we talk about the customer experience and expectation that drives fintech versus what would have been driving traditional incumbent banking, which was a product in the margin uh, example. I think things like COVID obviously have accelerated it because we're all downloading the, the mobile apps more. We're all paying online more. I think the over 50s actually on PayPal, uh, had, they had significant traction from the over 50s group during the whole lockdown situation. Nucoro did some research on the fact that, I think it was, I checked my, no, 6 million people downloaded their apps for their mobile banking during one month from March to April during, and used them and during the crisis. I think one area where it's really uh, accelerated is in the SME or in the SMB market, because up to this point, if we look at things like open banking, which is uh, using the APIs uh, to exchange the data and make a more personalized, individualized product and service for individuals and SMEs. It was a bit of a mystery. It was a bit of a flopped revolution versus an evolution up to this point. But I think SMEs got a glimpse into the features and the benefits that open banking enables. And the fintechs rose to the occasion during COVID, whether that was for a criteria a simple criteria sheet that you could log on and see if you were eligible for some of the rescue packages, for example, or an advance on, um, if you look at market invoice, now market finance, uh, they would advance you the money as if you were a factor in the invoice from the government on the money you were going to get from the scheme. Or Muse was giving people 0% interest loans in advance. So they have all stepped up where incumbents during the same period of time, I'm sorry to say, fell at the hurdle, point, the yeah. first hurdle on this one. So I think it's, it's been a, a benefit uh, to open banking and to SMEs and to individuals. I think we've all got very used to being digital, working from home, working from bedrooms full of children popping in and out and, and <laughs> having that laugh. But we've all got very comfortable with not having to go somewhere to make our payments. Cash is down and digital payments are up. Now, if you take it further and Dave, you'll be able to speak about tokenized payments and digital payments uh, as the next frontier, we're getting closer. I think that's really, I mean, really interesting because it's just about the first positive thing I've heard in the last three months. Uh, let, let's turn to, to Radu. I mean, what kind of technologies are driving this and what kind of technologies have, if you like, accelerated as a result of COVID-19, uh, which uh, I guess is the point that Helene is making, that uh, in some sense changes that were already underfoot are now being accelerated. And even people like me, deeply reluctant, far too old to be messing around with technology, are being forced to pull our finger out and actually do something. Radu. Yes. So, um, yeah, I first of all wanted to point out that I agree with Dave, we're coming towards an end of the fintech era, but um, in my, from my experience, fintechs are evolving from some kind of invaders towards being partners with the banks or uh, forming some kind of hybrid partnerships. 
And uh, I can see recently that uh, I'm approached by an increasing number of customers from the, from the field, which ask for different uh, solutions or for uh, try to embrace different technologies. But not always what uh, people think they need is what they actually need. Sometimes uh, we have to dig a little bit deeper and treat instead of the uh, symptom, treat the cause. But uh, nevertheless, it's obvious that we have a lot of uh, or an increasing dom uh, demand. And uh, to coming back to your question, what are the technologies that I see evolving? I think that uh, I would put on a first uh, place augmented analytics. These are those technologies that do not replace people, but instead help them to uh, reach a decision. And in this sense, um, I think it's very important to look at the transparency of the uh, model. You know, there is a lot of uh, discussions about the opacity of machine learning and uh, technology in general. And in this case, there are different uh, ways to make these, these things more transparent, uh, going from uh, empowering uh, people to understand and uh, tackle the data to uh, more uh, complicated um, models that are transparent. Then, as a, on a second place, I would say that uh, AI in general, so AI-driven development uh, is a, a force that uh, banks and uh, financial institutions uh, see and perceive uh, due to the data, am amount of data that they have at hand. And um, um, maybe I'm biased, but also another very uh, interesting technology is the edge computing, mm -hmm. which is sometimes seen as opposed to the cloud, but I would rather see it complementary because edge computing brings the payments opportunities in the hands of the people like uh, phones or even uh, smartwatches are used for, for paying. And this can give us a lot of data that uh, either is processed on the spot or is sent on the cloud. But this is another um, way of uh, being closer to the source of data. Excellent. Noor, what, um, what are the challenges that you face? I mean, you've come out of a conventional niche banking operation like Oak North and you've gone over to, to CallSign. This is uh, quite a shift, but as, as Dave was saying, Oak North is one of the great success stories, I guess, mm -hmm. of, of ch possibly the only challenger bank, but it's a challenger niche bank that has really, really made a success. Noor. Amir, yeah. sorry, Amir, sorry. No, no problem. Um, so look, uh, part of my job there was to, to think about those niches and, and what you can do with them. And just to pick up on what you said and what David said, I, I agree that none of the, the fintechs have gone and completely disrupted, if we use that word, um, financial markets. They've been focusing on niches. And, and the reason for that is in banking, if you want to make money, you generally have to lend. And so what you try and do is you find a sector where either you can bring in a drastic amount of operational efficiency, so your costs are lower, but you're lending at the same rate, or you find a niche that people are not lending to or, uh, or have priced incorrectly. And so before Oakenorth, the perfect example of that was SoFi in the US, terming you know, the Henry's, 
the kind of students who've got good degrees going into high earning jobs day one, but they've got a lot of debt and a poor credit rating and lending to them and making money off them. Oaknorth did the same thing with the SME sector and also when they did the back end operational efficiency as well by building out a platform. That's where we've, we've seen success. We, we haven't really seen success from a Monzo or Revolut who tried to go universal and actually be, be, be profitable. So I agree with, we haven't seen the challenge. We've, we've seen the focus on niche. So if I was to riff on that theme, what I would say is, um, I think the focus is gonna be going forward, not on the consumer sexy fintechs, which generally haven't proven to make money, but more on the B2B enterprise fintechs that sell to banks and are doing something the consumer might not even see um, and, and make and, and actually be profitable from day one. Especially if they're kind of a, a SaaS seller with low margin. Um, I, I, I think that's where the focus is going to be. And if we think about what's happened in the light of COVID-19 and what everyone else mentioned, um, we've got workforces who are entirely remote now and we've got shoppers apart from today who are shopping online or, or, or banking online. So there was a massive surge of traffic to mobile and web on the financial side. And I don't think necessarily um, the incumbent banks were ready for that and their systems were worried for that. And we've seen studies coming out every day for the last two weeks on how many clicks does it take to open an account or to send money or you know all of these different uh, transacting type events that a bank does. And I think that's the focus we're going to see. We're going to see a focus from banks to see how they can remove friction, remove steps, and what technology, which technology companies they can partner with and remove those unnecessary steps and make the user experience as fluid as possible because we're not going to see a return to the old level of traffics in branch or in store. Um, so so that, that's where the focus is going to be on from my point. I think that's really fascinating because what you seem to be saying is that there's a sort of short-term or immediate impact and a much what everyone is saying and a, a longer-term impact. The short-term impact is that COVID-19 has changed people's behaviours and Absolutely. is pushing them in the direction of doing their, if you like, conventional finance in a different way. And yep. that the, here, the startups, the challengers, the fintechs have a big advantage because presumably less legacy issues and, and more flexibility. Longer term, what Radu is, Radu is talking about, and I think also Helene, is changes in fundamental things like artificial intelligence, augmented uh, intelligence, augmented analysis, analytics, real-time analytics, all those things. Yeah which are going fundamentally in the longer term to make finance look very different. In the short term, COVID-19 is going to make it more efficient. In the longer term, it's going to look very different. Is that, is that fair, Amir? Yeah, absolutely. And look, if we, if we see what impact did the fintechs have on the incumbent banks, it, it, it wasn't in terms of interest rates. Um, you know, it wasn't in terms of fees. They didn't really do much. What we really saw a big shift on was customer service. Um, and you know better hours or in-app support or or video support but it didn't fundamentally change their products or pricing or or anything like that um, I think now what we're going to see then change is, is, is purely the user experience and if I can plug the company I work for and why I kind of joined them things like passive passive technologies where you're still authenticating people you're still doing your fraud assessments but you're not making people type in one-time passwords and, and card readers and whatever. That's what the focus is going to be on. People are going to accept life has changed. 
people are going to work remotely more often. People are going to bank far more remotely. My, my mother hasn't converted, though, I'll be honest with you. She's still wanting to go into a branch. Uh, but the majority of people will convert. And therefore, the bank needs to think about drop-off rates and reducing calls to call centers. That's what they're going to have a massive spike on, is call to call centers. When people who are not used to technology are now using it for the first time, you know, you said you've been forced to pull your finger out. I'm sure the first few times you've used it, you've had a few issues and you've asked for help. Banks don't want you to ask for help. They want to, they want to avoid that if possible, avoid that spike. So it's all going to be about how to passively um, do all the checks they've been doing previously without the user realizing and still meet regulations and, and feel secure. Helene, you back that up. I, I assume you would agree. I, I do agree. And actually, as you're speaking, I was thinking of a couple of things that came from this. There are, when, you, when you call the bank now, so I called my bank, uh, the business banking line for a suspect transaction. The first thing they mentioned is the vulnerable customers. And I think I, I've worked in banking. I worked in banking a long time ago, but we all know if you're in a bank, once you hear the word yeah. vulnerable, all the alarms go off. Right. Yeah. Banks need to respond in a certain way. There are going to be many more vulnerable people. If you think back to the last financial crisis, the vulnerability really kicked in in 2010 when the CCJs were issued to people, not in 2008 and nine when things were really happening to them. It was a delayed reaction. And we see it in the forgiveness programs in the US and what's happening here with over almost 50% of businesses saying they don't intend to repay the loans or think that they can repay the loans that have come out of the Chancellor's Rescue Package. We're going to see a lot of vulnerability. And the banks have been dragging their feet a little bit on, on uh, putting in place ways to deal with these customers. The FCA is looking at it right now. I am on the board of a company that does this, started out with dementia uh, people, and now they've moved on to a wider scope of vulnerable customers and how we deal with them. And the other thing is security because people were working from home and the systems were not set up for people to set up a laptop in their front room and deal securely necessarily with the volume that was coming through in our, in the UK. I'm also seeing it because I work with community banks in the U S trying to get them to engage with fintechs. They were really struggling because they were smaller banks are not digitally as enabled, they don't have the budgets to have been that enabled as a larger bank does, but everyone was worrying about security. You only need one major breach for this to also highlight that. And how, how what, what shocked me, I think, is how people were not prepared for it. Because if we look back, people were talking about the possible pandemic, not just Bill Gates, but other people beforehand. And we, should, we stress tests to the nth degree, but we didn't actually prepare for this. Dave. Um, your first book was Identity is the New Money. Um, that seems to go to the heart of what we're discussing here. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the crisis has highlighted the problems that have stemmed from the lack of a proper identity infrastructure. You know, you see countless stories on Twitter and in the Sunday Times and things about people who are desperately trying to get a small business loan. And actually, I, I, I won't even tell you why, but... It, I had to provide proof of address to Barclays. I've had an account with them for 44 years, you know. And so, and there's the woman in the Sunday Times who who already had an account with Virgin and had to provide four copies of her passport and ten gas bills and and all this sort of thing. So, so the so the crisis has highlighted the lack of a, a digital identity infrastructure. And there are companies. I say CallSign is one of them. And there are plenty of good companies around that already provide services in that space. I'm I'm on an advisory board of a couple of them. Um, and they've seen their business accelerate. So business was going in that direction anyway, but the need to have digital identity has accelerated. It's also, of course, spilled out of finance into other areas because 
basically I used to have to securely log on to my bank, but now all of a sudden that's going into education and health and all this sort of thing. How do I know you're a professor? How do you know I'm actually a student? All this sort of stuff. So digital identity is certainly going to be one. Um, I mean, nobody would have wanted it like this, but one, one beneficiary of the crisis. And I, I can't think of the way call sign's been around for about 10 years, I think, hasn't it, Amir? Yeah, just coming up. Yeah. And you've, it's probably 25 million in funding, something like that. So, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not an overnight thing. I mean, it's a, it's a well-established company, but like a lot of companies in this space, they had a nice steadily growing niche and that suddenly accelerated. Correct. The second area I'd focus on actually, and you were kind enough to mention the book, but of course the digital currency thing has spun up now because of the, I mean, I don't want to sort of make a big deal about it, but it it does mean something that the US Treasury was printing and mailing checks out to people in the same week that the Chinese started piloting digital currency in four cities. And this idea of, you know, Francis Coppola has written a very good book about this, about helicopter money replacing quantitative easing as the basis for government intervention in the future. I think that's, that's accelerated that debate there. And, and I certainly am a great advocate of, I mean, it should be one of the Bank of England's post-Brexit projects to create a digital sterling that is, that is valued around the world. But if I had to pick one area I, you know, where I think perhaps out of the corner of people's eye, something's changing, I'd say there's something going on in due diligence. We don't have a proper digital diligence infrastructure um, and so when you bring lots of new people into the system, you get these KYC, AML nightmares, which create a massive amount of friction for, for good people. And as far as I can see, do nothing to keep the bad people out. And that's where, you know, you've got AI, ML, you've got this sort of thing spinning up at an infrastructural level to really sort of change the way we kind of police the infrastructure as well so i think digital identity we all saw that coming and uh, and it's come true and the virus has accelerated it i think digital money has been knocked in an interesting new direction because of the crisis digital currency has become a much higher priority and i think out the corner of my eye i can think you know the fatf revised guidelines in march nudged in this direction saying that in certain circumstances digital onboarding was actually better than, than, than physical onboarding. So there's something going on there as well. So I'd say probably those three areas are, well, let, are, are the new infrastructure. Let me ask Radu on that digital diligence. Is it possible to use the, te- the sexy technologies that you are an expert in to make life easier for onboarding and for sorting out the bad guys without, uh, disim- di- without pushing the, the good guys over the edge as well? So I unmuted my microphone and say, yes, of course. Um, And I think this is the goal of everybody is to make it as seamless as possible. And um, what I found out, and I think it's crucial, is that when we're developing any application, we have to be at the intersection of SME and AI. So we have to be there in that sweet spot where we put a group of experts in banking with a group of experts in AI. Otherwise, we will never get a successful product that is accepted by either uh, party. And then there will be a third element, which is the emotional intelligence that we have to embed and consider as an ingredient in 
any solution because finally the product has to be used by people and people don't like to be pushed by robots or uh, by rules that they don't understand or they don't uh, feel uh, or vibe with them. So uh, I'm trying to consider all these three ingredients every time uh, I'm discussing about a new project. And I recently heard an interview of Andrew Young, um, a famous uh, professor in uh, uh, deep learning, and he was saying the same thing that uh, while in the past a company which was which had some um, a website which had some uh, AI it was not considered an AI company in the same um, way a bank which just had some uh, sparse or a few scattered uh, AI applications cannot be considered an intelligent bank it should have the AI embedded inside the core uh, processes. But it's rather interesting what you were saying about um, emotional intelligence. I mean, the idea is to embed the technology so deeply that the consumer doesn't even notice it's there. And that strikes me as something that's really important if we can actually pull that particular trick off. Uh, Helen, is that, um, is that how you see it? I do. I think, as I said, we go back to what, what people profess to have be the, the goal of fintech was that it was going to be the tech solution for the financial needs of the time. And it's always been that way, whether it was the 12th century in Genoa or <laughs> or any, any other time in, in history. That's what it should be doing. Right. That's what the telegraph did and the telegram did and diners card did. And every, you know, at the time, the ATMs did. So if we really believe that and we really want it to be seamless, then it it. It has to understand me. And, and there are areas of our lives where we welcome things that, that understand us. You know, I know when people are online looking for things, oh, when it comes in and it suggests something to you like it does on Amazon, you think, well, that's fantastic. I didn't have to think about that. We actually need to transfer this into, with the trust, with the trust, into financial services. And I, as I was listening to Raju as well, I was thinking, what is it? What is it that has taken so long for incumbent banks to actually get up and, and react. We talk about regulation and compliance and the constraints and the restrictions. But to be honest, if you have 30 million customers and a lot of money in, sitting in, in your reserve, do you maybe don't care enough to do something unless it's right in front of you and it's, and it's critical? Because this could have been done before. We've, we've, we've seen some attempts and some failures with the medals and the bows, for example, at RBS. One's going, one's not going. We've seen uh, NatWest and EasyBob come together and create Esme. You know, we, we, we've seen the attempts, but it just feels to me like it's coming, kicking and screaming, and it's not going to happen until something exacerbates it like COVID has, and it has to be done, which I'd never understand. Can I just ask one question, Helene, about, about what Radu said? Because I, I don't want to argue with him, but I, I am not convinced about this argument that customers want to deal with people because... As I recall, certainly from earlier, there was ample evidence that people preferred to do loan applications with bots, uh, preferred to discuss financial advice with, with machines because they don't like people saying no to them. They, they don't like people judging them. And so on. so I, I'm not sure about that argument. I, I think the, 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 the deployment of artificial intelligence both to support uh, in in Radu, as Radu is absolutely right, the use of artificial intelligence to augment, uh, you know, absolutely, I agree with that. But I, I think I would go further. I think I would say that 
it, it's really not clear to me at all that people really, you know, when I, when I connect, like the other day, I wanted to find out something, some annoying thing about something to do with opening accounts or whatever. I couldn't care less if it was a person or not. I just wanted to press a button and have some to there to ask the question to. And if it's a person or if it's a bot, I don't really care. I just want, and actually you would, well, I I don't know. I I could make the argument that actually the artificial intelligence version is better because when I press a button and I I get the artificial intelligence customer agent, I could get the Tom Cruise option for it. Well, I I wouldn't particularly, but I mean, you know know what I mean? Like as I, who, who do you want to provide your customer service? I've been looking at what the, google guys have been doing with all the deep fakes and the so it's like it's much better i do i want a person doing it or do, or do i want helen mirren i, I don't well, know you, you want somebody who says yes i mean well, I, you, you know I, somebody who says no and you don't want a bot who says no but i suppose if you're going to have somebody say no you don't want to be humiliated so in that sense it may be better to have i a bot. i think the psycho I, I thought it's quite well-known research that people prefer to be told no by a machine well yeah. uh, can i be really quickly and i think there was a misunderstanding i didn't say the customers prefer people i said the customers or i was referring to the customers of the ai like i was thinking about people working in a bank that prefer um, to understand and uh, get along with the application Um, and they we should embed uh, empathy into the solution that the workers are using i didn't mean um business to customer i was rather referring to a customer of the bank that's using a product of the bank an ai um, powered product of the bank or a worker in the bank that's using uh, that product so So you're you're saying banks should care about the emotional welfare of their employees Yes. Well, that's never going to happen. What's in dreamland, Radha? What are you talking about? (laughs) But are you also saying that if we if we if we dip our toe back into the relationship manager land, which is how I started, particularly again around SMEs, if the AI empowers the relationship manager in any way or gives them insights into the data, it aggregates it, it extracts the insights, and they have it. Are they then able to offer a better service to the customer? But I is one area something similar to what fractal for example fractal labs does but i i take your point dave that i and and as you were talking i was thinking about uh the different types of customer as well so if you're if you're fearful because you think you haven't got a good credit uh rating behind you and you're pretty sure you're not going to get the gig you want to go with the bot if you want to try and convince someone to give you something and work on a more person-to-person level you might want to go with the person. I don't know. As we have to go forward, we're going to probably get even tighter on, on what people can can get out of their financial institution right now. Uh, because well, let me ask a minute. Sorry, just to, just to pick up on that point. Um, the whole one of the whole premises of Oak North is that relationship managers are not going away for for complex loans. So if you're doing something vanilla, absolutely mm. everything should be AI, and why should you mm. ever talk to someone? But if you have an SME that's a growth business. And you can't say, look at my last year, last three years of financials, which are very stable, and my next three years will be the same. If you're a growth business where your last three years will look pretty poor compared to what you're actually projecting, you have to talk to a person. Mm-hmm. That that's the whole the, the whole premise of it. So, so that's how I would divide it up. It's 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 the it's the complexity of your situation and the the, the amount of change in your situation 
is where you need a person. Anything else, you should you should have uh, a machine do it. And I'll give you an example, my my bank, which gives me my mortgage, um, if I ask them any questions about current accounts, whatever else, I can do it in-app support. The minute I say I have a question on the mortgage, they make me ring up. That drives me mad. It's a very simple question. But for some reason, mortgages have, been, have not yeah, been... Give them a break, Amir. They only bought possible. Woolwich 15 years ago. It takes time uh, to integrate uh, these things, you know? Yeah, yeah. my mortgage is with a different bank, so I'm not going <laughs> to criticize my old employer. Uh, but just very quickly to pick up on two other points that yourself and Helen made. Um, Helen, you, you were speaking about the kind of vulnerable. I think one of the big things that we have to be very careful about is we shift everyone to mobile and web banking. Those who are socially or economically disadvantaged uh, are going to be even further disadvantaged because when you are trying to identify a user of mobile aware banking, you like stability. You like them to use the same computer, the same smartphone, to be in the same location. But someone who doesn't have financial advantages, they might be going to the public library to access online banking or they might have to share someone's smartphone. So it becomes a lot harder for them to access the services and actually be able to pass through. So I think that's one thing we really need to think about is, is how do you leave the, the tech vulnerable or keep the tech vulnerable included in terms of your services? And the other thing, David, you talked about CDD and, and there being a real problem there and it not catching up. I think one thing we're going to have to solve now that we've seen, again, the shift in behavior and user pattern is stop digitizing paper processes. Do a real digital process. And, my, and CDD is a perfect example of that. What, what happened, for, and this is, I'm going to make something up here and you can shoot me down. Originally, you know, up into the 90s, you had that bank manager and they were the pillar of the community. And you walked in your bank and they knew you because actually when, you're, when you were born, your parents walked in and they, that, that bank manager opened your account. And then when all the bank managers were fired and replaced with graduates and checklists, we instead said, come in with your passport and utility bill and the cashier will, will match your face to the photo. And then when we launched web banking, we said, come into the bank and we'll give you a password to get online. And then when we launched mobile banking, we said, scan your passport and do a selfie video and a low paid worker in the developing country will real time match it, make it look like it's AI and confirm it's you. All we've done is digitize paper processes, right? We need to think about digital. And I'm not gonna even plug call sign and how we do that, but this applies to everything with CDD. Right, it's, it's stop thinking about what you did in the branch and bringing that online. Think of a totally new way to do it. And anyone who solves those problems is gonna make a lot of money, not as a sexy consumer tech that anyone would have heard of like the FinTechs the last 10 years, but the next FinTechs of the next 10 years, which are B2B infrastructure um, tech companies. Well, talk a little bit about who you see as being the, the, the ones most likely to solve that particular problem. Where should we be looking? I'll be honest with you. I think if I use the, the previous kind of quip that David threw out there and to, or actually Helen did around, well, when you've got 30 million customers and you've got cash, why would you do something? I would say the same thing with the tech companies. If they're doing something and they're already profitable, I don't think those are the ones who are going to solve the problem. I think it's going to be someone in a time of a pandemic like now who might have lost their job, but is very smart and has great experience that's going to come and solve the problem in a way we haven't heard of. So I don't think it's going to be a known brand. I think it's going to be a, you know, a kind of a genesis of something new that we're going to see pop up and solve. Dave, Dave you, you must have thoughts on that. Well, well first of all, Amir is he's 100% correct. You know, we, we've been through this process of, and I, I know it sounds like a bumper sticker, but we call that marketing. We've, we've been through this era of digitizing identity, and what we need is digital identity. 
you know, we need the new infrastructure for the, so I couldn't agree with him more about that. Um, and I also, uh, I mean, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but, but I happen to be an advisor to the board of Authentics, which, which yeah. actually does do it using AI and doesn't have workers in the third world. Doing it. So I appreciate Amir's plug. That was, uh, that was great. <laughs> Look, I think, I think the, um, like, I hate to be, but it comes down to the regulatory envelope around this sort of stuff. So the, the, the SME space in particular has been, you know, the, the, the low hanging fruit in the SME space in the open banking world has gone to people who, you know, collect up the data and know how to manage it better and use it to inform better decisions. And that's going to happen in the consumer space as well. So I, I think we can use some of what's happened in that SME space to sort of guide us, guide, guide us through that. And, and to Amir's point, those things are things that are unsexy, but they're volume. It's taking huge amounts of data and, and, and plowing through it and, and getting some wisdom out of it. If I had to pick, um, if I had to, you know, like I'm, I'm, everything new sounds like a bad idea to me. So I'm probably not the best sort of person, but, but if there's a kid in a basement somewhere working on something now, um, which is going to be kind of really revolutionary. Um, I, I think privacy is the, I, I just have a feeling, you know, I've worked in this field for a long time. We haven't managed to, to resolve it. You, you don't have to be paranoid and, and a devotee of, of, of Zuboff to see, you know, the surveillance capitalism era is unsatisfactory and it's not kind of working out the way people want. Some of the kind of idealistic blockchain stuff about oh put people in charge of their identities I, I don't buy there's another solution there waiting to come along so there's a kid in a garage somewhere who's doing something about privacy and that can light a bit of a fire because you see you know apple versus google and mike you know you see some tension building there waiting for new business models around privacy instead of around surveillance so if i had to pick one thing where i don't know the answer but there's a kid somewhere I, I keep looking at privacy as the area where something new needs to happen. Radu, are you, uh, do you share that as privacy as both a threat and an opportunity? Um, yeah, I agree. Um, what can I, I say? would have thought, coming from a Romanian background, privacy must be very, very close to your heart. Never again, I would have thought. Right, exactly. So I, I was thinking that I have a bias <laughs> towards <laughs> in this uh, respect and i can see quite a lot of uh, movements now on on the market it's interesting maybe you're aware that there is a big debate on the face recognition applications yeah. and ibm recently pulled the plug to one of their technologies i mean to everything related to face recognition um, microsoft also and i think google too they uh, kind of refused to develop further. They understood, uh, froze some of their development for the next year. I don't think these things will be successful. It's just um, everybody's uh, in expectation. They are trying to see where this will go. But uh, finally, uh, you have a technology that works great and you have so many applications. I don't think it, there is a way to avoid using it. I have to say, my, my good friend, Jamie Bartlett, who made the podcast of the year last year, The Missing Crypto Queen, if you haven't listened to it, it was the podcast of the year last year. Jamie was talking about the Metropolitan Police face recognition system. 
and said very wisely, in my opinion, he said, well, you know, if this, if this doesn't work, it's going to be a disaster. And if it does work, it's going to be even worse. And that, that's how I feel about it at the moment. Okay, I want, to yeah. ask, I want to ask Helene to go back to something that Emir said. He, he had two points. The first was on vulnerability and how the vulnerable will be passed over by the revolution that's coming down the pike. And I wonder if you agree, you've obviously done a lot of work in, in, in deprived areas. If you feel that um, we really need to, to, to spend more time worrying about how the vulnerable are going to cope with the changes that are coming. I think we do. I, th I think <laughs> I, I've unfortunately lived through probably four recessions now. And <laughs> I wasn't planning on this one. And this one, you know, if it comes with any kind of impact, as I said to you, I look back and I think, well, what happened last time wasn't happening in the real time. It was happening with the lag that came afterwards. And that's when people suffered. And of course, we are much more aware now. We're much more aware of our uh, mental health. Today, um, Future Farm launch for entrepreneurs and their mental health. We have Royals speaking about mental health. So everyone's been much more switched on about it. But we still have a problem with scamming. And we still have a problem, as you said, with, with tech poverty and the, the deficiencies in terms of devices. And as, as the technology develops and more of it becomes, well, you hold your phone this way, or you sign in this way, or we're watching your behavioral analytics as well. And if you're shifting from device to device, or you don't have access to it, or you're doing it at four o'clock in the morning, because that's the only time you can get access to the device. And suddenly that means you're not uh, credit worthy. It's going to increase. The other side of me is thinking, ah, oh, another debt bubble, because people will try to get as much debt as they can to get past something, to survive, to think what's coming next. And then we're not going to be able to pay that debt back again. And we're back into a cycle where we didn't necessarily learn from before, or we have new players in the same space. And I, I really worry for what will happen to individuals and business owners who are in this space. There are things, and, and they are AI, machine learning powered, using the algorithms, feeding the data in, that can flag and alert. And you can choose a designated person to be your other person in the loop that says, you know, obviously you've got erratic spending. Do you need some help? I'm watching the ads for a very large bank in the UK with a horse that's in partnership with um, Mental Health UK saying, we're here for you. Uh, I don't know. I bank with that bank. I'm not sure they, they're there for me. And for me, that's paying lip service to what is going to be a mountain of people needing help. And we've seen in the past where some of the banks took people lost their homes, their livelihoods, their businesses, their lives in some cases because we weren't responsive enough. We need to think about this now because that's going to be an explosion of people needing help. Well, I think, I think you've, you've flagged several points there, but one is that, that we have a population that's aging quite rapidly. We have a te technology that is changing quite rapidly. That particular combination means that there's going to be a vulnerable group there that really can't cope with the changes in the technology because of demographics. But you're also saying that we're going to produce a new generation of uh, socioeconomically deprived people who have failed to, to cope as well with the coronavirus as, as others have. And, you know, that, that's two groups of, of vulnerable going forward. What does it constitute? 15% of the population? Are we going to ignore them completely? I mean, Amir, you raise this. What's the answer to it? Well, I mean, this is, a, this is one of those three-hour debate type things <laughs> in terms of do we teach people life, scan, life um, 
life skills in schools. You know, should should people be taught about saving and how to do mobile banking and things like that, which are arguably more useful. Uh, you know, my 10-year-old, we're currently looking at secondary schools for her and they're talking about we do Latin on the curriculum. I studied Latin GCSE. You know, I, I valued a subject, but I prefer to her to be able to do mobile banking and save money and know how to spend and not, you know, spunk all her money. But, so I, I don't have an answer. But, what but is it, is it is, your, your daughter you should be worried about or your mother you should be worried about? Well, well, my mother has an answer, right? I have to come around every weekend and do whatever she needs on the computer for her and help her out. Um, most people don't have that. Um, I think what it highlights is there is no solution. That's immediate. It's, it's, we, we need a whole new system, whether it's, uh, you know, Barclays launched the Digital Eagles, people who come and just uh, irrelevant of mobile banking, help their customers get online in general and browse safer and all the rest of it. Do we need that kind of Digital Eagle infrastructure at a government level for those who are vulnerable, whether it's because of economic uh, situation or just, just age, whether it's old or young? Uh, well, I, I think so, yes, but you're not going to solve it quickly. That, that's not only. I mean, the, well, the sooner we replace the government with bots, the better, as far as I'm concerned. That, that, that day can't come soon so. enough. That, yeah. that day can't come soon enough. But yeah. I, I think I'm more optimistic. I mean, obviously, I would say this because I come from a more technological direction than, than you, Amir, but I'm, I'm slightly more optimistic about that because I think that the advances that you guys are talking about in things like you know, artificial intelligence, machine yeah. learning, they, they work on the consumer side as well. So the idea that, you know, the bank has some fantastic AI bot and it's talking to a person, that's a very short-term view. In the longer term, it will be the customer's AI bots that are talking to the banks. And, it, you know, whereas it might be difficult for, you know, my dad, for example, it's a bad example, but to, to, to go to the Citizens Advice Bureau, or whatever it's called now, advice or something, I don't know. But... <laughs> The idea that my dad can talk, you know, using Alexa or something yeah. to, to, uh, to something that, you know, the witch banking service or something that, you know, the AI will be working on the consumer side as well. And, and I'm, I'm more optimistic about that. I think if you'd have asked me the question four or five years ago, I would have said, well, I'm stuck. I mean, I know how to help people that have smartphones or digital televisions or PCs, but that, that, uh, there's a wall after that. But I think now we're, we're seeing a different way forward. The idea that voice and voice recognition, voice authentication, some of the pattern stuff that people are talking about mm -hmm. linked with AI and machine learning can deliver a very different kind of financial services world, which, which actually underneath it all at that infrastructural level you're talking about is actually basically bots selling financial services to other bots you know, sort of on people's behalves. I'm, I'm kind of more optimistic about where that could take us. So, and, and yeah. you, you, you can criticize that that's a more, and I, I, I recognize that's a more tech, but you know, I think that's where the technology could take us. It, it could do. I think you've been reading a lot of science fiction, but yeah, I think. <laughs> Not I think as much as you do. by the look of it. No, <laughs> but one thing I would uh, just pick up on a previous point you made is I link it to that as well. I think the key is going to be privacy in that. Um, we're going to, we're going to have to see a shift to everything being built privacy first. Um, that might be forced by regulation or it might just be forced by uh, generations of people now who are sick of da their data um, being mm. sold and then being modeled and, and uh, observed too closely. Um, so, so I think the whole, the whole idea of privacy, whether it's a solution or just everyone building things to be privacy preserving um, ground up, that's definitely gonna, that's definitely gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a philosophical switch of for the last 
uh, you know, decade or two, we've been thinking about what can I do with technology? I think what we're going to start seeing is, but should I do that with technology? And, and that's what we've seen with the IBM announcement, for instance, that Radu um, spoke about. And a, a completely irrelevant example for me would be Facebook versus Snapchat and the kind of uh, propagation of news. You know, Facebook have said we have to publish everything and Snapchat had said under the First Amendment we agree there is freedom of speech but we disagree on freedom of reach. So yes, we allow you to talk about what you want but we're not necessarily going to promote you just because you're famous because we don't have to do that. We can just only allow you to publish. And so again, it's a shift in the mindset of allowing anything that technology does or actually thinking about whether you should do it or not and that will apply to every element of banking, privacy being a key one. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Radu? Yeah, I wanted to say that uh, here we can think that we're talking a lot about um, technology literate people, uh, people that are supposed to know how to use the technology, but I think uh, we should aim towards people literate technology. So technology that really understands what people feel or uh, need. And coming back to one of the First, uh, things that uh, we were discussing about a bank that cares about cares about uh, its employees. Um, so I, I still think this is um, uh, something realistic because uh, me, as a representative of the producer of the software, uh, I'm interested that uh, my users, so the employees of the bank, are uh, comfortable using my technology, and that technology is. Um, literate to people so uh, understands people and it's not because the bank wants or doesn't want is because i want my product to be used um, as efficient as possible by the users i've just come up with four um themes that that, that resonate with me obviously identity is one privacy is another simplicity is one that resonates greatly with me because I'm perhaps a little bit older than you are, and kindness. What <laughs> one really wants is a little bit of forgiveness built into the technology because it's awfully, it's awfully unforgiving at the present time. Um, we are coming to the end of our hour, but I do want to give each of you just a couple of minutes to talk about, let's put yourself 18 months from now, the COVID panic is finally over. I, God, I hope it is. 18 months from now, what does finance, what does banking, what does uh, consumer finance in particular, the interaction of the consumer with the financial sector, what does it look like and how does it differ from the pre-COVID world? Radu first. Well, I think it should be a seamless process of um, much, much easier than uh, previously where uh, we can um, have an immersive experience with the bank in itself, uh, as a, both as a physical um, place to go and as a technology um, payment uh, and other related um, technologies point of view. So I think uh, the barriers will disappear and there will be a easy way to access everything which is related to banks and to finances. So seamlessness is, is, is an important theme as far as you're concerned. Yeah. Helen, how do you, how do you see the changes that, that will occur partly as a result of the COVID virus, but more generally? 
I think picking up on Roger's point about seamless, what I'm also seeing more of now is wearables coming to the fore. They've, they've been sort of that little, you know, the cousin that was never the one that actually succeeded a little bit in the, in the past. The ring that didn't work all the time or the watch that didn't work all the time. Uh, and I've seen some in this past week where you can, you as the consumer, you are the innovator. You can load up the chips onto the fob or the ring or the watch that you want to have uh, in, in your financial solution and your bank just has to get on with it. So I think that will also help people to be more at ease with making those kind of contactless, but, but also being in control of those contactless payments. I think on the actual infrastructure side, what, what I'm feeling and what I'm seeing more of is, you know, we talked about neo banks and new banks and digital banks and challenger banks. I, I think that banks as a new product, we don't really need them anymore. We need a community. And when you have a community, you can overlay the technology that has been developed in the last few years to create the financial solution for what you need. If you think about the hundreds of millions that go into creating a community, if you're a Monzo or, or a Revolut or a Starling, we don't really need it. If you have a community, we have lots of technology that you can plug in in a platform way to create a financial solution that works for me as the consumer. And I think that is something we're going to see more of. Okay, also, then you've got, to, you've got to explain what you mean by community here. Uh, what are the communities that you're talking about here? The community might be teachers, it might be veterans, it might be the police, it might be um, drivers. It, this sounds and, like the, the American Credit Union movement. It is part of what came out of the AFL-CIO, uh, that, that the teachers union came out of that, the American uh, Federation of Teachers came out of that. But I think we've, we've, if you look at the community banks that service the community, the, the concept of a community has now gone global. It's having an affinity with a group of people that you want to have a, the service and the product that works for, for you and not for everybody else outside of that community. So whether that's a loyalty scheme or a card for your a family member or a certain kind of a cashback or uh, loans for, if you're in a community that's looking at surrogacy, for example, an adoption and you can't get those loans as a partnership versus a marriage, we're now seeing more of, back to the initial point about niching, super niching, but I don't need a bank. I need a financial solution. Amir, where do you see that? I think some of the things you've just said there are actually a step back as well as a step forward. Agree. Lost that sense of community that drove the co-op movement, that drove all sorts of things before. And we've made it much, much harder to set up financial institutions because of all the KYC problems, capital requirements, and so on and so forth, to do the kinds of things that uh, 100 years ago you could kind of do routinely. Sorry, Amir. Yeah, and I'm going to go for a walk and digest what Helen said and, and then think about it on. But anyway, uh, to answer your question, I think I've... I'm here all week. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. Um, so to pick up one that the other said, I, I, I would change seamless and I would say um, friction by design. So all unnecessary friction is removed and where friction is actually wanted by the customer, it is available to them and it's the right kind of friction. So whether that friction is, I want only two clicks to open an account or I do want to speak to a human because... I have something complex that I want to talk about and it, it needs someone with nuance and, and feeling. So it, it, I think friction by design is what we're going to see as opposed to one rule fits all user journeys. Okay. And actually, do you feel that there is political 
muscle behind any kind of movement in the financial services sector? Is it, is it possible to see positive change in financial services? Well, I think there's a lot of bad press around banks and, and all the rest of it. But fundamentally, a bank's job is to keep your money safe. And no matter what you say, you're putting your life savings in one of the high street banks, not in one of the, the challenger banks. So I, I think the, whatever the press and the PR and the NPS scores say, people still feel safer and feel the, 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 the core, you know, pure uh, objective of a bank is something they do well, which is securing, securing your money. So I don't think there's a huge change that needs to happen. I think, yes, the user experience needs to become better and all the rest of it. But in terms of my money safe, I'm, I'm comfortable with how safe my money is. The last word is with Dave. It's always with Dave. Dave Birch. <laughs> Uh, well, I have to say, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to what Helene said about this resurgence of community as, a, as a, an organizing principle. And, and I think actually you published a report about this a couple of years ago, which, if memory serves, had a forward from the Archbishop of Canterbury. So this idea of perhaps looking back as a way of going forward, I, I kind of agree with that. But um, specifically at 18 months time, uh, I think financial services always defined by the regulatory envelope. There is a almighty regulatory battle coming up between tech and fin the big banks are going bbva just published a thing today santander before the banks are very upset about the regulatory landscape which forces them to basically open up their data to the technology companies for nothing in return and that's that's not sustainable so there is an almighty regulatory battle coming up what will be the kind of settlement i don't know but I, I was talking to Faith Reynolds the other day. She, she wrote that mid-year review of open banking last year, which said, you know, which I think had the germ of an answer, which is to st stop regulating for financial services and start regulating for financial health. You know, have an industry that delivers financial health to people. And I, I just have a feeling there's the germ of a, a solution there. Right. On that point, we've left all sorts of germs of all sorts of <laughs> solutions lying on the floor, many of which I trust will, will multiply like viruses, whatever. I'm mixing his metaphors. But can I thank all of you? Can I thank Radu? Can I thank Helene? Can I thank Amir? And can I thank Dave? And can I thank all of you who watched?